I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero-carbon future a reality. In this episode, my conversation with Scott Clavenna, the co-founder of Green Tech Media. Launched in 2007, Green Tech Media quickly became the premier brand in climate journalism and research. The company took a forward-thinking and sometimes edgy approach to covering the emerging world of clean tech and climate tech. In fact, What It Takes itself originated as a partnership with Green Tech Media. Sadly, the media arm was shut down by parent company Wood McKenzie in February of 2021. In this interview, Scott talks about how he and his co-founder built a media company at a tumultuous time for journalism. You wouldn't be listening to this show if it wasn't for Scott and GTM, so I personally owe him a big thank you. This conversation was recorded live at Powerhouse's headquarters in Oakland, California in 2017. Our friend and former Green Tech Media employee, Shale Khan, set the scene. GTM was envisioned to be the leading source of market intelligence, news, and community building for the transformation of energy. And I would argue that's exactly what it is today. Now, remember, in early 2007, this was a time when clean tech was really hyped, especially in the venture community. Early stage financing, Series A financing for clean tech companies peaked right after GTM was founded at nearly a billion dollars in just Series A financing, up from virtually zero three years earlier. Then two things happened. First, the financial crisis hit, and for a while, basically all new investment froze across any sector. Second, the bottom fell out of the clean tech VC world, um, and that early stage investment that hit a billion dollars fell 75% from its peak around the same time as the financial crisis. And the market entered this valley of death that basically lasted until the economy recovered in earnest, or at least the recovery began in earnest. This made it a pretty inauspicious time to be starting a media and research company focused on clean energy. But GTM survived and actually grew throughout all of that time. The entire time that I was at GTM, I joined in early 2009, and the entire time that I was there, we grew every single year. Every year we added new capabilities, new analysis, new areas of coverage, and just continually expanded our reach within the energy sector. 2017 has been a year in which, in, in this world, we talk a lot about resiliency on the grid. Um, one thing that I learned directly from Scott that I will retain for the rest of my professional life is one of the secrets to resiliency in business, which is a steadfast and true commitment to innovation and nimbleness. No matter what hit us, uh, and believe me, many things did, Scott had enshrined in all of us, I think, a, a real focus on generating new ideas and acting on them post-haste. This ensured our success time and time again. Um, when something was going wrong, we had something else that was new that was going right. Scott also taught me how to empower a team. I have no idea where I would be today if Scott had not empowered me to design the GTM research team and business and products and services as I saw fit with his help all along the way. Here are some other things that I think you should know about the business that Scott built. Over its lifetime, GTM has published nearly 15,000 articles on the website. It has received more than 50 million visitors, ranging from the college student who's just trying to learn about energy for the first time to the CEO of the largest utility in the world. Its podcasts receive over a million downloads a year. GTM's research, data, and analysis has been cited by pretty much everybody from the failing New York Times to fake news CNN. <laughs> it uh, it did even show up in President Obama's State of the Union address twice, two years in a row. We did that. And relevant to this event series and to this audience, unbeknownst to many people, GTM is a clean tech startup success story. GTM was venture-backed. And as I'm sure Scott will tell you, um, we were acquired in a very successful acquisition a year and a half ago by Wood McKenzie, which is the leading global provider of market intelligence in the energy sector more broadly. So it is a successful cleantech exit. There aren't that many out there. 
GTM's secret sauce, in my opinion, uh, can be traced back very directly to Scott's overarching editorial vision for the company from day one. It is a search for truth within a dynamic, complex, rapidly evolving market where many others had and continue to act as boosters for this technology or for that company. Uh, Scott created an organization that was not afraid to ask hard questions or to call out vaporware um, within a market that pretty much everybody who works at GTM does care about succeeding. And as I was building the research business at GTM, Scott imbued this in me from the start. Do the work, figure out what's really happening, and tell the story. And as a result, GTM has become the storyteller of the energy transition, which is why I'm so excited that Scott's here to tell his own story. With no further ado, I'll hand it over to Emily Kirsch and Scott Clavenna. So this is what it takes. It is a powerhouse and green tech media partnership. We tell the stories of founders of some of the biggest companies in clean energy and the personal stories between building behind building those businesses. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO here at Powerhouse, and I'm thrilled to welcome you, Scott Clavenna, to What It Takes. Oh, thanks for having me here. Thanks for that great introduction. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Great. All right. So while, while Green Tech Media is very much a household name, Scott Clavenna, that name may not be. And I think that's actually a testament to Scott's leadership. Oftentimes, CEOs are in the spotlight or on billboards, but in Scott's case, yeah. he, uh, in Scott's case, he he has made it a priority to put his staff in the spotlight. So you know Stephen Lacey, you know Shell Khan, you know Julian Spector, you know Julia Piper. You may not know Scott Clavenna. So the purpose of tonight is to tell that GTM story um, about the founder, chairman, um, and CEO of GTM. So people. Starting with your background um, and your childhood. Yeah. So people who grew up on farms often have animals like chickens and cows. Scott, you at one point in your childhood grew up on a farm with wild animals as pets like owls, hawks, giant snakes, an African spotted cat, and a wolf. Can you tell us how that, how, uh, how that happened? All right. It's a bit of a long story, but I'll see if I can make it quick. So I was uh, born in Illinois and... Uh, my mother was a, an aspiring biologist, but had to take seven years off to raise my brother and I um, after she had us. And then in, I guess when I was in second grade then, she, uh, my parents split up. And so she moved my brother and I to Wisconsin to go to University of Wisconsin-Madison to get her PhD in biology. So she was a zoology and psychology major. So she was uh, intending to, and then had a very successful, she just retired last year, but a very successful career in uh, animal behavior and reproductive physiology of uh, the animal kingdom. And so we moved as a very poor graduate student family then to Wisconsin. Um, and we lived a year in Madison near the university, but then um, she met her uh, boyfriend there and they decided uh, the, the best place to live uh, to finish out their PhDs was to go to the country so they could have a lot of space. And so we moved to a little town called uh, Mount Horeb, Wisconsin, which is a corn, you know, just sort of a farming community outside of Madison. And what we did was rent a farmhouse. And so we got a lot of land and a barn, but we didn't have to farm it. So there was a farmer that actually did the farming and we just rented it. And so uh, my mother and her friend then kind of lived, this was 1976, I think. So they sort of second wave hippies. And so pretty quickly then started in on, uh, the term organic wasn't popular then, but, you know, we raised our own vegetables um, and then quickly started acquiring animals. And first it was um, horses and chickens, but then um, my mother's boyfriend, because he was a wildlife ecology major, he thought it was a cool idea to supplement his income by going around the schools and doing kind of educational talks to them about wild animals in the animal kingdom to elementary schools. Um, and through that, he was able to get permits to start acquiring more and more diverse animals. And so along. So from the time I was in third grade to ninth grade, we had dozens and dozens of animals in the house that literally would range from any week to, like you said, pythons, hawks, owls, um, 
a timber wolf, which is a terrible idea. It's literally <laughs> a terrible idea. Um, it doesn't want to be held captive. If you come near it, it really just wants to eat you. Uh, it's <laughs> terrible, especially to have two kids. It is not good. Um, and uh, But sort of fascinating. We were definitely the unusual kids at school because almost everyone else at school then was a farmer that got up early and did typical farming work. And then they'd come by and visit us and see that in, <laughs> instead of uh, uh, what they were used to seeing, cows and pigs. So... Uh, but, you know, it gave us, I think, a really interesting sense of ourselves as kids growing up that, that um, you know, that we were really invested in education, that we were in, in really resourceful, that kind of make it all yourself, do it all yourself, conserve, 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 and then like really get embedded um, in nature and animals and wildlife and uh, did a lot of camping uh, and a lot of time spent with other graduate students. We had a lot of them board at our house because it was a large farmhouse. So there was always, and it was a very interesting time to be, for me to be like 10 to 14 with a lot of like late 20s graduate students around the house. So it wasn't a typical you know, nuclear family, that kind of childhood. Um, but it was, it was absolutely fascinating. It gave me like a really good sense of, um, my relationship to, you know, education and, and the, the natural world. And it ended up, you know, I think driving a lot of decisions later on, it definitely brought me to clean energy later. So continuing with the unconventional history, a lot of people in our industry went to school for computer science or engineering. You got an MFA in writing. Tell us about what right. you were up to in college and then what you were doing immediately after. Sure, sure. So I did. I started out, I was going to follow my mother's footsteps. So I went to University of Minnesota originally and um, as a biology major. And I, I guess as you find when you're starting out in college and starting to take the courses and meeting the other people that you're going to be with for that uh, that journey, it just by the you know the third semester there, it was really just not feeling like the right fit. And all of my English and humanities courses were really clicking. I was just having a, a fantastic time with them and doing a lot of writing and reading. Um, and it just it finally. I could feel the shift occur, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to be an English major. I want to, I want to pursue that career in, in uh, literature and writing. And so I did. I changed schools. I went to uh, St. Edward's University in Austin, Texas. So changed schools, changed sides of the country, everything. And um, had a fantastic experience, loved it, and uh, got an undergraduate degree in English and writing. And I think what I, my ambition then was really around like science writing. So thinking at some point um, I would either be a successful novelist in, you know, with sort of science influencing that or writing for um, a science magazine or something like that and, and using those skills. And I went, uh, that brought me to graduate school then at Emerson um, in Boston, and I got an MFA in creative writing. Uh, but it also there had an exposure to literature and, and publishing. So it's kind of a three-pronged three degree. And that's where really just like I think what happens a lot of times in life, there's coincidences and luck that really, if you take advantage of it, it, it changes the arc of your career. And so I, um, through a roommate, got a job at a, just to pay the bills in graduate school, I got a job at a consulting company in Boston that was doing uh, fiber optic market research. And so it was 1991. And fiber optics was a very immature but interesting technology. And I got the job there literally as an editor of their newsletters, not because I had any knowledge or expertise in fiber optics. And so, um, but it was a small entrepreneurial business. Um, the entrepreneur who ran it was uh, a really interesting, like a lot of entrepreneurs, a really interesting characters, had good sides and bad sides, very driven, uh, very hard on his employees. But if he found you had talents, he definitely would reward you for exploiting those. And so I kept at it. I, I was reading. I was hired just as an editor. So I was copy editing and doing some content editing of newsletters and research reports that others were writing. And um, he then I just started asking, like, I really get this. You know, I've been reading you know, this constantly every day. And 
he would literally give me little quizzes on a whiteboard just to say, like, I need you to understand this. I don't want you to just be a copy editor. I want you to get what this is. So we would have fiber optics class in the afternoons and he'd give me quizzes in the morning. And um, I think he saw that if I got it, then I could be a very low cost analyst. I mean, part of it's the entrepreneur. And like, I can groom this very cheap editor into a low cost, you know, uh, high revenue generating analyst. And it worked. Um, it took me a while to figure out how underpaid I was, um, but I learned a lot. So it was relatively cheap education, uh, but I loved it. And I actually loved the research and writing around technology. I, you know, even though it wasn't writing for the Atlantic or, you know, nonfiction or some, uh, fancy prose, I, I actually really loved, uh, the, sort of satisfying of intellectual curiosity around technology and around a disruptive technology. So I was learning then how an industry reacts to and absorbs disruptive technology and how you have to think. I think what was key and I think what kept me so engaged was when you look at something like fiber optics coming into a a market that's been uh, operating with copper wires for you know nearly a century. And now this is a technology that was really going to transform that and accommodate all the services, all the communication services that we have today. There was a fundamental technology that was going to change everything that like, not only are you doing research to explain the technology well enough and explain um, the market players and the differentiation among them and the different ways in which the technology is involved in various niches, you find yourself also thinking a step back and realizing there's a narrative to this, that there is a story you're going to tell. And that story is actually not just interesting to the New York Times Sunday magazine reader. That story is actually incredibly valuable to the market participants because so many what I realized and I was always shocked when I would go to visit a um, a fiber optics firm and meet with them and meet with the engineers and the CEO and to learn more about them to incorporate what they were doing into a, a research study is how eager they were to hear what was going on outside, to hear this, the larger story that was happening. And I would think I was coming to them for information and they would just be like, well, what are they doing? What's Nortel doing? What's loose? How does this all fit? And I would just think, wow, I can tell you how this all fits. This, you know, this is fascinating. I loved it. And, um, it just kept me going. And, and fortunately for me, it was fiber optics and not the railroad industry or something like there was like an increasingly urgent need for analysis and insights and narratives around that market every year. And so not only did I get good at being a industry analyst, I, I started to do things like speak at conferences, write for other publications, really like reach out and figure out all the ways I could take that story and that information I had learned and, and bring it to other venues and, and actually start, um, on the one hand, help myself, but also I could see that in those different venues, those were ways that you could develop more business. So I was starting to get a sense at least of how you build a business around knowledge, you know, and so that then led me to start my own company, the first one. Tell, tell us more about that. And particularly, I don't know if this was before you started this company or after, but you got an audience question once when you were on one of those panels that sounds like it changed your life. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, I wasn't quite there yet. Okay, okay. let's go to, <laughs> let's go to the company you started, the first company you started. <laughs> yeah, so then um, I really did tire of working for this particular imperious uh, entrepreneur. As, as much as I learned, um, I did feel like I had to get out from under him. He's a huge personality and, and kind of suffocating. And I thought after um, five years there, I had learned enough and understood the market enough. And I understood what it what not just how to be a good analyst, but actually how to run at least a small business. And so with a partner, I started a firm called Pioneer Consulting in Cambridge, Mass, and uh, focused specifically on industry research on the optical networks transformation that was happening. And uh, we were just wildly successful. And to the point where you could convince yourself everything you wrote turned to gold, which is not knowing you're on that part of a hype cycle. You just think like, I got this. I am the, you know, the king of fiber optics. And then um, uh, you know, I would get invited to speak and there would literally be like standing room only, 600 people to hear it. And then 
it, inevitably, that market kind of came and then corrected. And I got invited back to that same venue. And there was like 11 people in the front. <laughs> and I was like, oh, should we start? Or are they still coming? <laughs> So I lived through that, so I, which was also educational, to see actually the, the complete arc of a market from like a niche technology that no one knew about to increasing sort of application, hype, wild overinvestment, correction. But it is here still, you know, it didn't go away. Fiber optics underpins everything, every communication we have today. It just, it had to go through that cycle to get a tremendous amount of investment and deployment and then find um, once that infrastructure was there, there's a tremendous amount you can build on top of it. And so that was actually incredibly instructive to live through that. I learned a ton about venture capital, about um, IPOs and exits, and just the whole ecosystem of not just a technology market, but a you know a disruptive technology market that gets that kind of attention. So um, I was able to sell uh, my stake in Pioneer Consulting and then move out here to San Francisco. And I started doing consulting with venture capitalists for a few years. And then in um, 2000, I got a great opportunity not to start my own firm, but join one that had just started called Light Reading. And that was a, a really unique business model. And a, a, again, a really unique entrepreneur that was in charge of that that I really just felt like this is a great opportunity to, to join. Like I didn't want to just always do my own thing. I, you know, when you see something really interesting, it was a great opportunity to jump on board. And in 2000, the, the interesting thing they had done, um, again, which planted the seeds for everything that's in green tech media is they had started a industry, uh, media firm with no print. So it was digital only, which was very unusual in two, in 2000, um, and they added conferences to that. And then the, the next, the thing that, that I had talked with them about, and then we decided to sort of jointly build together was, um, create a research firm within that as like the, uh, a side project at first, but then became this core, uh, division of the business that ultimately becomes the strongest part of it. You know, the brand has been created with the digital media, um, content and interaction with the wide audience. But you, if you have um, a really good industry research business inside of that, it makes everything so much stronger. And I knew how to do that. So I built for them um, uh, the leading optical networks research business that then fed into the whole ecosystem of light reading. And uh, we just had a great, great experience. We had a ton of fun, uh, really dynamic time to be involved in that really aggressive journalism. You know, I mean, I think some of the things that Shale mentioned at the beginning um, that I learned the value of was to be really, really aggressive and not be in a, in an industry and just be there to boost it and be there to love your advertisers and love all your clients. And it's, you know, we're all in this together, but when you see something that smells fishy, it probably is, and you should dig deeper. And if you see companies that are being hyped, but you can't find any customers, you should probably, ask the hard questions and really call them out. And Eric, Eric Westhoff is here tonight. So, yes. I, and so he, that, he's got us covered. <laughs> right. And that's why he joined <laughs> green tech media in the first few months. Um, Cause I wanted that. I knew how valuable it was and I knew, um, and I had learned how the begrudging respect you get from advertisers, even when you're really hard on them in the articles, they realize they need to be a part of your, your ecosystem. They need to be on the page with you or else you're just going to, you know, uh, leave them out of the conversation. And so, uh, it was a great learning experience. And actually, I, I guess one of the things I still take away when I talk to young entrepreneurs is that I'm reluctant to say to someone who's 22 or 25, go start a company. You'll love it. It's great. Entrepreneurism is, is the way I really think working for a startup first is a great, great and almost necessary experience because you're going to see so many mistakes being made that you won't have to make. And really, um, you don't want to. You know, it's a learning process that that you can learn a lot from when you're not so personally invested in it. Because I think you can blind yourself to mistakes you're making because you're just convinced it's worth it and, you know, the bodies on the side of the road are okay and all that. Where if you're if you're just a, a witness to it within, you can you can learn a ton. And I find that to be 
there's no way you can get that in business school or um, in you know doing it on your own and just watching it unfold under your nose. So I really appreciated that time. And when light reading was acquired, then then I really did feel ready. Then it was like, all right, I can do this top to bottom. And that was the the genesis of Green Tech Media. And uh, what brought me there was then to bring it around to the, the quote that happened at a conference. Um, I was at a, an event moderating a panel on um, some latest generation in optical networks. And someone didn't ask me, but they asked one of my panelists, is really the outcome of all this optical networks technology deployment just a means to download Britney Spears videos faster? <laughs> and everyone just was like, oh, that's funny. That, yeah, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> but I was just sitting there at the podium like, oh, God. It kind of is. It kind of is. <laughs> I actually can't think of a better application right now for this. Um, and, you know, I came away from that. It didn't happen overnight, but it kind of planted the seed because it kept happening at other events and other um, conversations that the point of broadband communications was less and less evident to me. You know, the, what Verizon was doing in, in New England was just getting into cable TV. And what the cable TV companies were doing were getting into telephony and Internet. And, you know, the, the payoff of it all obviously is a, an Internet ecosystem that we all live in today. But I, I didn't actually see uh, the social value that was obvious from it. And so thinking about the next thing to do, I really just want to do something different. And I, I actually didn't have an idea um, and was casting around for a bunch of different ideas, and none of them were sticking. Um, and my wife mentioned on a, a drive near our house one day, um, what about environmental activism in the light reading mode? And I was like, mm, yes, no, and it'll never work. I, I can't see it happening. And I, I just literally shook it off like no one's going to actually want Why would you do that um, in a digital media format? And then... I started doing some reading and she was right that like the there was the more I read, the more I realized one, the urgency of, you know, climate change mitigation, the actual ingredients necessary for this kind of information services business were, were there. Because what we found at light reading is you've got to have a lot of venture capital coming in. You have to have some big top feeders that are being disruptive and are, are being disrupted and are either getting pushed out of business or doing a lot of acquisitions. So there's money flowing, you know, down to those um, startups and, and opportunity for them to exit. There has to be some, at least the opportunity of an IPO market. Um, government has to be involved. There has to be like a policy response to that. And yeah, as we looked around, it was like, God, all this is here. But why isn't, why isn't there another you know, media firm. And we, we found some um, that looked like a, at least competitive context, but I didn't see anything that matched what we were doing. You could find research, you could find some media, but you, you didn't really see what we had built. And so I uh, then really conceived of Green Tech Media as a business model venture more than Honestly, I was passionate about clean energy and tried to find a way to communicate that to the world. It was very much, I've got this business model. Where can I make it work? And this is a great place to make it work. And um, we were right. Um, you know, fortunately, <laughs> it worked. And we raised money and got going. Tell us about that. Where did the money come from? Um, the first round was a, a seed round. And raising money in clean tech, even then, was not easy. Uh, it's not like... Uh, particularly if you're saying you want to, you need venture capital to build a media firm. That was real, uh, you know, that's a hard sell because the, the path to exit isn't obvious. The um, venture capital community's familiarity with media is actually very narrow. There's very few venture capitalists that that's where they make their money. A lot of them are um, in private equity and do much larger deals, not little, you know, seed rounds. So what we've cobbled together in that first round um, were really just like some friendly angel investors that we had met in the telecom days that just believed in us and they knew the light reading story. And then a group in New England who was kind of like an angel aggregator. So they, I wouldn't even say angel aggregators, high net worth individual 
aggregator. So you would pay, you could contribute ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars to a fund that was set up just to invest in a company. So they would kind of create this and then um, go solicit participants. And um, and they ended up a lot of the money came from like wealthy telecom people in New England who knew of us and had heard the story and they knew the light reading story. And fortunately, the light reading story was good. It, they had raised $3 million and sold for 35 in five and a half years. So you could point to, if you start here, you can get here. It's not huge. You know, you're not launching the next Facebook or anything, but the media market is actually quite acquisitive. Tons and tons of deals in that 30 to $100 million range happen all the time in media, business media still today. Um, and so if you were comfortable in that, it's actually, a, it's a, you know, a legitimate way to invest. So we got, we aggregated up a, a million dollars and um, launched. And our idea was we need editors, analysts, and we need to put on a conference in the first year. We got to get everything out in the first year so we can really show the market that we've got this isn't something we're going to build over years. We're going to come out. You're going to be able to buy research from us. You're going to read news every day, and then we're going to get you together by the end of the year. And we did it somehow. Sounds like it was awesome. Did you ever, were there hard times? Did you ever think you were going to fail? Did you feel like you ever made mistakes? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. It, it constantly feeling like failure was pretty close around the corner. And it, it's like terrifying. Um, it's actually an odd state to live in um, for any long period of time where all the evidence is in front of you that you're running out of money really soon. Like it's, it's, it's visible quantified evidence that your bank balance is really reaching zero. And yet the bills you have are increasing on this side. Like they, they just don't match up. And um, what, I think what kept happening is my co-founder, Rick, and I each had like a, and which I think is necessary, sort of a slightly irrational optimism that look around, look at this team, we're going to do it. When none of the evidence suggested that it was going to happen. <laughs> and literally it, w- it did happen. And um, we got as close as you could get for a while, certainly in the middle of 2009, late 2008. Um, with the financial crisis starting to hit, a lot of clean energy investments drying up, uh, a lot of customers getting very fickle about spending. And while we were hiring, because we were aggressively hiring with the money we had raised um, and realizing we were just hiring out ahead of you know, the revenue that was in front of us. What did we learn from that? I, I don't know. Because honestly, it's kind of what you need to do. You got to just gut it out. Um, I think what worked was... Uh, I, I personally then became extremely focused on the financial side of the business, obsessively focused on every bill, every dollar, every check that came in. Like we'd wait by the mailbox. I'm like, what's in there today? <laughs> oh, thank God. There's something in here today. Um, and, and plug it in and be like, all right, we got it. We've, we just bought two more weeks. We just bought three more weeks and literally um, manage it dollar by dollar. And I think actually it ended up being – a lasting, really good discipline to have that undisciplined um, startup financial management is terrible. It is a disaster. And so, um, you know, we, we got through it. There was a, there were other times that weren't financial. I think there were times that we hit where um, I would say operational issues were probably the time that, I guess the thing that, that I would take away from building a company is that there's a point where you need to go from, and I think it's around 20, 25 people, but there's a point where you need to go from stop hiring individual high performers or people you believe to be individual high performers and just keep throwing them at the task at hand. Like we need more reports. We need more sales. We need more um, editors on the site. And you're just looking for these the type of high-performing individuals you hired in the first 10, that if you keep doing that without imposing any sort of structure on how they, how they work, the teams they're on, who they report to, like how they, even over time, what the opportunity for growth looks like, 
Because if everyone's just a high-performing individual, it occurs to them at some point, like, I don't have anywhere to grow because I'm already the top and the bottom of this role. And there's a point where, like, you have to stop doing that. And you have to start, I think, a lesson I learned, and certainly looking back, um, where you need to think about what does this company look like when I scale it? Like, what is the path in which this becomes an organization where I don't have to do everything, where these these individual, these high-performing individuals don't have to do everything? And I think there's like a, a time that we missed, and we caught up, fortunately, but we missed where like you should go about hiring really good managers, really good internal leaders, and empower them to then continue to grow their team so you don't have to like deal with all of those issues. And um, I think one thing we were talking about uh, recently was when we found that point, when we did an internal company survey of the an anonymous internal company survey, um, just to see how everyone was doing, just kind of checking in. Um, how do you like your job? How do you feel about your prospects for growth here? And that kind of thing. A lot of the stuff, the culture, everyone came back really positive. There's a, you know, we were doing a lot of great things. And then one of the questions was, do you know who your boss is? And it was like 20 plus percent didn't know who their boss was. <laughs> and, um, it might even have been higher. Um, and we looked at that result. And we're like, you've got to be kidding. You don't know who you're bought. Oh, my God. And I looked down. You know, we started going down the list. And you're like, okay, I could see that. You know, we just started throwing people <laughs> at projects and didn't really make them accountable to anyone. So in some cases, they could do really well um, because they just understood how to self-manage. And in other cases, it, it creates just chaos. They just start, they're not doing their job or they don't understand what their job is well enough to actually um, perform and even just the sense of like, I'm at this company, what is it, what's, what's my job look like in five years? And they couldn't answer that question because they just knew what they had to do today. And so it took some time to reorient our thinking around how do we make this company like solid, organized, scalable, team leaders, all that kind of good stuff. And it, it was definitely challenging, still is, but yeah. And so with that, with that organization and focus both on the staff and financially, you got GTM to the point where it was acquired. Tell us about how the acquisition came about and, and what that looked like. Yeah, um, that was interesting. So we were, it was 2015, and um, we were doing well. A lot of the, uh, the areas that we were in, we picked our spots along the way. We definitely shed a lot of areas that we were looking at early on, and we really said we need to be in solar um, smart grid and energy storage is like the three places where we could really be experts and uh, particularly U.S. solar, very much focused on the U.S. Um, and we were doing really well and we weren't weighed down by any underperforming areas. And so with the growth prospects ahead of us, um, we got profitable. There was no way we needed to raise money again. Uh, and so, you know, you looked at the financial metrics and said, hey, this is like this is getting to that point where um, it'd be attractive for an acquisition. And I think what we weighed um, in talking to some investment bankers was, on the one hand, you could wait and just keep getting bigger. Like if you're growing 25% a year, wouldn't it follow that you'd be worth 25% more the following year? So why, why sell now? Um, and weighed that against risk, right? Just internal risk. Are all these people still going to be here a year from now? Are there, are there certain products that are just going to blow up on us and, and this growth rate is going to go down and then we're going to have to explain that? Um, will like some of these key leaders that we're building teams, what if they have grown you know, ready to move on and they leave and then we're rebuilding? Like what, what is the risk associated with like getting um, waiting, assuming you're on this linear path and then there's a bump in the road? How do you sell a company when it's going down? You know, it, so you'd be waiting and waiting and waiting, and then God knows what could happen. And so we we weighed those risks and decided to wait um, one year. And so that would have been we were going to wait until early this year, early 2017. And so we were fine. We walked away from those conversations like, all right, we're all in it. Let's all like make a sacred vow. No one's going to leave. <laughs> we're going to grow this company by 30 percent. And then in April 2017, we'll, we'll bring it out. 
um, to market. And what happened was 60 days later, I think, our investment banker said, hold that thought. I actually found a buyer. Let's have a conversation. And um, so we were like, okay, actually, (laughs) we're in. Um, So we had, (laughs) why wait (laughs) if they're ready? Um, And uh, so Wood McKenzie was in a position where they had then, they had spent years, 20 plus years building up uh, a very large business in oil and gas industry and some power. Uh, being a data and analytics provider, 24 offices around the globe, over $300 million in revenue. Um, but they had a lot of customers that were asking them about renewable energy. And they didn't really have a strong response. And they could put them off year over year. But I think um, by the time 2016 came around, all the big oil majors and their financial industry clients were coming back to them saying, IHS has renewable energy. Bloomberg has renewable energy research. You don't, you know, like what, what are you going to do? And so I think that it makes perfect sense. Right. Um, and lucky for us in that context, there weren't that many, I don't know if you could really say there were any, um, freestanding private right size, right fit, um, renewable energy intelligence companies out there. So it was the right time for us. It was the right time for them. And honestly, in an acquisition, I think without us shopping ourselves around, we still got in meeting them and we, we kind of knew what the market would bear. Or we had some sense of it, at least from recent uh, acquisitions. And in talking to them, even though we didn't go out to market and shop ourselves around, it, it just there was such an obvious strategic fit. And we met their CEO, we met their leadership team, we all got along great. There was just kind of a nice feel to it that, that um, cause part of it, you have to ask yourself, do I want to work with these people? And then the other part is, do I want my employees? Cause you end up after 10 years. I mean, you know, so you just, you're so personally attached to your team. You want to take care of them. Like, will, do I want to bring them into this? You know, is this going to work? Um, and be a good fit for them and us. And will we have enough autonomy to still feel like GTM, but part of a bigger organization? And I think we were comfortable enough with those answers being yes, that um, we went forward. And bless his heart, our investment banker was so good. And he, uh, he insulated me from a ton of it. He would just report back to me. Negotiations are going great. Hang in there. And I didn't have to like, get in the hot seat, get into a room with their other CEO and battle out over a price like this all happened off stage. And he finally came to me and said, we have a deal. And he showed me what it was. And I said, where do I sign? And uh, it was <laughs> it was great. It's nice. great. And I think our employees were happy. Um, you know, the, the terms were good for us. And uh, it, it closed pretty quickly. That, that whole process started in April and we were done in July. Wow. For the entrepreneurs who are here tonight and those listening across the country and around the world, what advice would you give them as they're at the early stages of building their companies based on your experience building GTM? Sure. Well, yeah. So we've been talking about this, just knowing this conversation was coming. And I think like one of the things that I would do differently and certainly like the advice I would say, some of it we did right. Um, But some of the things we would do differently is I do think hiring choices are more important than you give them credit for at the time. I think one of the things I learned was that when you're starting out and someone's giving you a million dollars and saying, go build this company, you have a sense of urgency to actually build it. And so, you know, you start interviewing and you're like, oh, this guy looks great. Or she's oh, she used to work at so and so. And so you're just like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, come to work for us. And you realize so it feels good. You're building a team. They get to work. Um, but the risk you run, and we ran into this, is that if that person is not a good fit, when, it, when you're at that size, you know, zero to 10 or so, it's really uncomfortable. And it's really um, painful to unwind that. And you need to do it quickly or else it's, it just gets worse and worse. And that happens that happened along the way on a number of occasions where um, nothing wrong with a person, but if they're just not a good fit, if they're in the wrong company, they're in the wrong role, 
if you don't deal with it quickly, it's so bad. It's so bad. And you want to, uh, some of them you actually have, like, you really, you could be friends. You could, this is a, a great person, but if they're not in the right role or if they're not in the right fit for your company, um, you can think you could maybe train them out of it or you could mentor, get them in a slightly different role. But there's a point where it, it just has to end. And that is, uh, it's, it's painful, but like the longer it goes, um, it's surprising how bad it gets, you know, because not only is it bad for that person and the people they work with, but it also what I learn on the job that becomes so obvious is that if employees see that someone's not being dealt with, then it doesn't just look bad for them. It looks bad for you because they're, they're just like, oh, he doesn't deal with these problems. And it starts to just chip away at the culture and the morale and the focus that you that you want to have in the company. And, oh, man, that's just brutal. Yeah. So that was bad. Good thing. Um, good stuff that that we did right that I think um, I would suggest is one. Uh, you really do have to focus on finance. I mean, the one thing you have is a finite amount of money. And if you squander it, it is such a disservice to your employees that you've told them the story. I mean, there's storytelling that goes on to the market, but there's also storytelling that goes to employees. Like how you recruit them is to say, like, take a career risk, take a personal risk. Maybe don't make as much money as you think, you know, you're worth, but like come to work here because it's going to be great. And we really value you. And we're going to turn this into this great, um, company that has a lot of impact in the market. And so you've done a job selling it. And if you, if you blow it financially, it's, it's, it's like the worst thing you can do to yourself and to everyone else. So, um, being financially, um, very careful and conscientious and, um, recognize like how that is the single most important job of a CEO's, I think, um, of all the other things the CEO can do, I, I still believe the, the single, their single most important job is to not let the company run out of money. Everything else is like moot if they do. So like that, you have to stay on top of. And uh, it's actually more to it than just balancing the checkbook every month is, is a lot. It, every decision comes back to what is the financial impact of this decision I'm making? And does it shorten or extend the runway we have? Good words of wisdom. We're going to move into our high, our high voltage round. So normally we ask, what's your spirit animal? But for you, I know you're a comic book fan. So I actually want to mm. ask, uh, what superhero would you be if you were a superhero <laughs> and why? Uh, no, I am a passionate Silver Surfer fan. He's not exactly a, <laughs> he's not exactly a superhero, but he is, the, he is my um, comic book spirit animal for sure. I mean, he's this very cool, quiet, intellectually curious traveler throughout the universe, just learning and interacting, but not... Uh, not destroying, not saying he's just like this quiet, curious, silver person. That's that's, <laughs> that's that's so you. And it speaks to what I said in the opening, which is you're this behind the scenes leader that's built this incredible company, always putting everyone else in the forefront. So very appropriate. What have you found consistently most inspiring? Um, you know, over the years, I think the easiest way to visualize it is coming to work and seeing people have gotten there before you get there and are staying after you leave and just seeing that, like, if you build something, other people can get so passionate about it and they're not doing it for you. You know, they're doing it because you built something that makes like sense for them and is something that they recognize a value to the market and to themselves. In. And to see them get that passionate, it's, it's fantastic. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? I'm actually like right now a little burned out on startups. So I would, uh, I'm actually most interested in like teaching English in college. <laughs> so I heard you recently moved into a house in Maine that was previously owned by a Pulitzer Prize winner. Are you yeah, yeah. getting that through osmosis of yeah, the he house? He inscribed a uh, copy of Moby Dick to me. Like he set me up perfectly. I just haven't actually sat down at the desk and written yet. But yeah, no, it's great. Very excited about that. Next summer. Nice. To whom do you attribute your success? Well, 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 I hadn't thought about that one. Um, definitely my mother, as I described, being uh, 
kind of a workaholic, super, super focused on success. You know, success um, for her being a female biologist, you know, in the late 70s was not obviously easy. And she was discouraged a lot from going into it um, and encouraged to pursue other fields of study. And she just was super focused at it and um, worked at night, weekends, always um, passionate about what she was doing. So I think I definitely got a lot out of that. And then um, I think my wife is the other one. This sounds like Academy Awards. Um, <laughs> it is. <laughs> really being like making me think always about um, the the impact of what I'm doing has on society, like really making me conscious of that in a way that I wasn't before. And so being like an, an entrepreneur that's still very focused on um, building a humane company, I think is something I'm really proud of. And I definitely attribute that to her. Sweet. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because they run out of money. <laughs> <laughs> success is uh, success is. I think for us, to, this is supposed to be short or long. Short. Short is. <laughs> All right. Having an impact on the market that you're involved in. That for me is really great. Not just observing, but having an impact. My biggest regret is. I, I don't think I have one. I'm most proud of. Uh, I am most proud of Green Tech Media um, by far. Um, I'm also really proud of Shale. I think Aww. like <laughs> we, we, we started this out uh, you're really in 2009 when GTM was taking off. And man, we had so much fun building this together. And what started is, you know, he came on as just a analyst and we ended up really just like sitting there together for hours on end in Harvard Square, just figuring out how to build this. It was, it was awesome. Awesome. Last question. In order to build a clean energy company, what it takes is? Uh, the story. You got to have the story. The passion that you can inspire in other people. I really think that makes a difference. You got to get everyone in the company as passionate as you are or more. You know, that they, they, they believe what you're doing. Excellent. Please join me in giving Scott a round of applause. You can listen to all our What It Takes interviews since 2017 right here. And join us for new stories of founders who are building a carbon-free future. Their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. We're launching new episodes monthly throughout 2021. Subscribe everywhere you get your podcasts. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with Postscript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.